Yo, this place is big. We should split up finding Will. Said no one who survived a horror movie ever. Because as you know, in every horror movie, the first rule of survival is never leave your friends. So don't split up if you want to make it to the end. No, don't. Don't split up. Welcome back to the Don't Split Up Horror Podcast. Today we are going to be doing The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2, but we're not going to do Annabelle because that movie was terrible. I am J.R. Foresteros. I'm Amanda Foresteros. I'm still terrified. And I'm Stacey Silveri. <laughs> uh, so this film franchise is all about Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are real-life paranormal investigators. And just to give you an idea of what we're going to do in the show today, we're going to talk a little bit about the actual couple, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and then go into the first Conjuring film where we will spoil everything because that movie's been out since 2013. So if you haven't seen it yet, that's your own fault. And then we're going to do uh, spend most of our time talking about The Conjuring 2. We'll do a bunch up front of no-spoiler kind of stuff, and then we'll dive into spoilers, but we'll give you plenty of fair warning. So if you haven't seen The Conjuring 2 yet, and it just got into theaters, so you may not have, don't worry. Uh, we've got plenty to talk about before we get into that, and we'll give you plenty of warning before we hit spoilers. Uh, so had e any of you ever heard of Ed and Lorraine Warren before The Conjuring? No. No. To be honest, I hadn't. The Amityville Horror is the only one, as far as like a possession and/or horror story that I knew was based on a true story. I'd never even heard the stories of The Conjuring or The Conjuring Two. Apparently, the Rhode Island haunting, which is what The Conjuring is all about, is much less uh, famous than either Amityville or the Enfield Poltergeist. Uh, so, yeah, I, I had heard uh, just like kind of briefly of Lorraine Warren. Uh, she's on one of the ghost hunting shows now, or she was for a while. But they actually founded the New England Society of psychic research which is the oldest ghost hunting group in new england so they've been doing this forever ed warren actually died in 2006 but lorraine warren is still alive uh, she's 89 years old and lives oh, in Connecticut. Wow. so yeah she's still around still alive and kicking still doing stuff um and uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, they've written tons of books. Uh, he is a self-trained, self-proclaimed demonologist, and she's uh, clairvoyant. But they've written tons and tons of stuff. They've been in all kinds of, um, uh, like, features and, and movies about this kind of stuff, like the, the TV appearance that they make in The Conjuring 2. That's real stuff that they've done all the time. Uh, and so they've received, obviously, as you can imagine, like tons of criticism and lots of uh, believers, people who really believe things that have been going on. So uh, I, once we get into spoilers for The Conjuring 2, I want to come back to this question of like proof because I thought that was an interesting, uh, an interesting theme in that second film. Absolutely. Uh, Agreed. But, but first, let's talk about The Conjuring. So one of the things that this, now that we have two of these films, one of the things that they've established as a pattern is that they, they begin with this sort of like side haunting that is a true story from Ed and Lorraine Warren's case files. And then, the, then it moves into uh, the actual haunting that the film is going to be uh, focusing on. So in the first film, the side haunting was this Annabelle doll, uh, which again later got its own prequel that was... Terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what did you what did you all think of the the way they handled the doll, uh, Annabelle, in the Conjuring? 
if we mean literally, I think they handled it ridiculously because who puts the creepy, scary doll in their house with their child? In real life, Annabelle was a Raggedy Ann doll. Mm-hmm. Also terrifying. Those yeah, things agreed. are creepy. Um, I yeah, I I don't know. I thought it was pretty effective to have the you know you had the two the two I guess they weren't college girls they were whatever young adults or whatever but. You know, that they said, oh, you know, it was, we invited it to live in this doll because we felt sad for it. And then, you know, <laughs> Ed says, no, it's tri- like it was tricking you. Uh, this is a, this is a malevolent, malevolent demon, and now it's attached itself to this doll, which is why they, you know, they took the doll and put it in their museum, where apparently it still sits to this day. You mm-hmm. can go see it if you Oh, want. and apparently, yeah, they, uh, I was reading a little bit about um, Lorraine, and she, besides doing the investigations and talking at cons and all of that kind of stuff, she still runs the occult museum in the back of her house. So, field trip! <laughs> Maybe okay. I'll be sick. You guys not into that? Yeah, right? <laughs> so here's what I want to know. If you hunt demons and or malevolent spirits on a daily basis... Why do you create one place of concentrated evil in your own home where eventually maybe you're going to die and then what, someone's just going to come in there and start dispersing this crap on eBay and you have to start all over again? You won't have to. You're dead. I mean, she still might. But what would you do with it? Because the idea is that these objects are now, like these spirits are bound to these objects. Doesn't doesn't fire cleanse all? If you destroy the object, it frees the spirit. That's what they've said. So Davy Jones's locker, then. Yeah, so it's like it's like a supermax prison for demons. Mm-hmm. Until it's not. Well, yeah, of course, right? But that I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that uh, someone like what do you what what are your other options? Davy Jones's locker. <laughs> How is that going to help them? What once the ocean uh, disintegrates the object, then the spirits are free again. Oh, in the movies, it doesn't disintegrate the object. It stays there until someone finds it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I got it. So so you don't have any real-life solutions. We need a triangle. Isn't that real life? <laughs> uh, so the main haunting in the film, it revolves around the Perrin family. They're a Rhode Island family. There's like four girls I think four or five. I think there's five. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they start experiencing all these crazy things. And then, you know, as it turns out, the mother is being possessed by a woman named Bathsheba who used to live on the property uh, who sacrificed babies to Satan. And so it was, it was, uh, you know, possessed would it take the mother, kill the child. Mm-hmm. And so there now, again, the house, the actual house still is there. You can go look at it. Uh, people live in it now, and they bought it without knowing that it was haunted at one point, because in Rhode Island, state law does not require you to uh, disclose such information. Um, but there was a real woman named Bathsheba Sh- or Bath. I'm gonna try this again. There was a real woman named Bathsheba Sherman. There we go. Uh, and uh, she may have murdered an infant with a sewing needle. Uh, an infant died. But there was apparently not enough evidence to convict her, and so she went free, and uh, people began circulating rumors that she was a witch. Uh, and so all, all of those parts of it are true, and then, of course, this family experienced these, these paranormal uh, activities. Uh, my question is, you know, given that the, the, the film and the true story, obviously they take some liberties, uh, what did you make of the film? Did you find it? 
scary? Was it, uh, and, and if you did, what was scary about it? Oh my god, uh, that whole movie was terrifying. I was going to say, did any of us not put this on our top ten when we did that last year? I'm pretty sure we all put it on the top ten. Yeah, actually, uh, in 2013, this film made my best of 2013 list. Awesome. Not just as a horror film, but I mean, yeah, I thought it was just great. I felt as far as horror films go, it stood out from anything. And then I agree with you, JR, just as a standalone film. I mean, it was well put together. It's not often you get a horror film that holds up from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, I mean, that movie had so it had jump scares. It had plot scares. They had the infamous clap, uh, which unfortunately was done in the previews too much. So it lost a little bit of its oomph in the movie. But I remember that one part in particular where you remember when the demon or whatever, the little girl demon is up on the armoire and the door swings open and you know, something's going to happen. You know, something's going to happen. You know, something's going to happen and they pan out and nothing happened. And they come back and she jumps off the armoire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a woman in the theater who jumped up and she was kind of far in the back, jumped up screaming Made her way to the aisle, still screaming. Ran all the way down the steps, still screaming. And out the other door, still screaming. And never came back. Like five minutes later, her friends all got up and shuffled out and had to leave the theater too. It was just like that was the breaking point for this poor woman. But that no, that was terrifying. Oh, that whole I agree with you, Stacey. That whole movie was terrifying. But I think some of the jump scares in that one, because they didn't rely so heavily on them like some horror films do, they were mm-hmm. twice as bad. Um, well, and they fit into the. I mean, that I was thinking about it all the way through the through the second film that there were plenty of jump scares in these movies, but I found them effective, not annoying. Correct. They're not uh, just they, there to be the only form of horror. Yeah. In fact, it was it was payoff to long, long, long periods of tension. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So much and, tension. It, I kind of likened it to, and not to get into spoilers or anything, but the red-faced demon from Insidious. That was another one where I never thought it was too forced. I really liked those first two movies. Um, and I feel like this kind of paralleled that same idea where you knew it was there, you were talking about it, it didn't just happen to happen. Yeah. One of the things I found particularly effective about both of these films uh, was that there were many, many, many long tracking shots uh, in in the film. And so... I, I was uh, I, the first time I saw The Conjuring Two. There was a Q and A with uh, director James Wan afterwards, and so one of the things he said about why they do all of those is that in horror, it's really easy to cheat with doing all of these quick cuts, and it yeah. lets you it lets you do things that look supernatural, but of course it's all done with movie magic. Uh, because you can cut to something, then it cut back, and then there's a ghost there or something like that, right? It's like whoa, and he said by by insisting on using all of these long tracking shots it made them it made them do things more creatively so that the whole film felt more realistic because at a subconscious level the camera never looks away so it felt like what you're seeing is more real that that could not have been more true for me i thought that was horrifying usually like you said <laughs> in the horror film it jumps around so much that you're expecting the jump scare like it's you know it's right around the corner with this one, I was literally like pushed back into my seat as far as I could <laughs> because I felt like like the child with his fire truck, for instance. Like when he's trying not to look, and you're slowly like that's a way. That's in the second one. We're still in the in the first movie right now. Sorry, it just <laughs> but with any of them, like when they have these long hallways and these old homes, you know, these hundred plus year old homes mm-hmm. and stuff. And instead of just shooting outside and coming back to the room, 
you're really in the character's view, and so you're slowly creeping, and then you're slowly turning, and you're feeling that tension of the character. Like it, it never breaks away, it never stops it. It just continues to build until you get that payoff, and it was ugh, horrible. Um, I was just gonna say, tag along with that, saying that that was really effective movie making for me. Like you, you just can't look away, and you're stuck in that moment, waiting for the next terrifying thing to happen to you. You know, one of the things, uh, Clay and I saw it the first time together, our friend Clay that l- uh, listens to the show, um, and one of the things we commented on afterwards was, and you just said it, Mo, right? Both films are set in these huge old houses, yeah. and the the early in, early in both films, they do this big, long tracking shot where you're going all through the house and seeing all of the different family members, and and those shots serve to teach you the geography of the house. So that later in the movie, when scary things are happening and people are running from room to room or like looking through the house, you know the layout of the house. Mm-hmm. And so it matters that they were in room A and then they're moving to room B and you know the route from room B to room or A has to pass by room D and room D there was something scary that, you know, so it's like everything mm-hmm. that happens, you, you, have a, you have a really strong sense of the physical geography of the house uh, so that, and I'll come back to that when we talk about the second movie, because that pays off in some big ways in that one. Mm-hmm. But even in that, you know, in in the in the Conjuring, there's that night where the mom, the dad's off in in his truck, and everything happens. It's the night the wardrobe scene happens, and all that other stuff happens at all the same time. And it's the first night the mom sees the supernatural stuff. And there's like five different things happening at the same time because she's in the basement and the girls are upstairs with the wardrobe stuff. And so when all those things happen at the same time, it's even scarier because you know where everyone is in the house and you know how physically separated they are. And again, typically in a haunted house movie, only one scary thing is allowed to happen at a time, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the fact that all these different things are happening and you know how physically separated they are, it it just really ramped up the horror for me. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, So let's, uh, let's just do best worst of the conjuring. What was, what was the most effective scare or your favorite part of that film? Mm, probably. I, go ahead, Mel. No, go. I mean, I'm probably just gonna go with one that we all think um, the wardrobe scene for sure. I'm sure that got a lot of people. Um, and then when the they're playing hide and seek with the clapping game. Oh, uh, somebody see... took two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I thought you were going first, Stacy, oh, not sorry. Amanda. Oh, you touch. <laughs> I mean, they're both equally good. You can't pick one or the other. They both sold the movie so well and tied everything in together and made you terrified. I will. I will not use one of Stacy's multiple bests then, and <laughs> move on. I, for me, it had one of the best. Um, um, not possession, but uh, when they when they actually tied the person to the chair and they were getting rid of the demon when they were exercising the demon I thought it was one of the best exorcist scenes uh, I've ever seen that a whole piece in the basement was probably my best yeah I yeah I would totally agree I mean all of that stuff I was just thinking about something that for me was the best the most well I don't know if it's the most realistic or not but I could just very much imagine those kinds of same things happening to me like when the the demon would pull on the leg 
um, that of, was, the, of, the, of the kid or like pull the blanket off or all like all of that stuff was really, really creepy to me um, because I've, I mean, I haven't actually experienced any of those things, but again, like that, that was a very real and tangible thing that you could get into your head about and make right. nervous, you know what I For mean? For how many so. years were you terrified to put your feet down in the evening or at night yeah, <laughs> you know, on the floor? Like. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, I, I love The Conjuring, too. Um, I was going to say this before, before we got to Best Worst, that, you know, there's not a whole lot of gore. There's no, like, uh, final girls, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll. Like, it's it's just a really amazingly classic I mean it's a little heavy handed with God talk and stuff like that but but it's just a really really good exorcism story um, I mean it's it's just great so anyway yeah my best uh, was the whole sequence uh, where the mom hears the clapping and goes into the basement again I agree that scene was ruined in the trailer um, where the, the hands come out right from behind her head and then she falls down the stairs, you know, all of that. Because that's all going on at the same time as what's going on in the girl's room with the woman on the wardrobe. Like, that, that all of that happened at once and that it was, like, 30 minutes into the movie was just insane. Right. You know, exactly. usually, that, usually that level of intense terror is reserved for the third act of a film and that that was sort of where it almost started. You know, we had like one night or two nights of escalation, and then it was that. And 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 also, I think usually what I expect from these kinds of movies is that the the parents take longer to believe. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that the mom and then the dad are basically like everyone's just all in real early on. Um, I don't know. That made it really effective for me because because uh, typically adults are like safe you know the monsters don't do anything around the adults I think that's like a, a classic like way that we scare ourselves as kid you know because kids kids are afraid and so there's this idea that when the authority figure is around scary things don't happen because the monster is like hiding from the authorities kind of mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the parents represent the authority figure the Warrens represent authority and that the the haunting stuff is happening in their presence uh, was was scary, like so that so that when the parents found out, I felt more scared, not less scared. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so I, I like that all of that was wrapped up in that early, early, early scene in that movie. Did you guys ever wake up at three oh seven and pee your pants a little because that's when stuff was about to go down? <laughs> you remember that 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 was the time or whatever that all the clocks would stop and then I did not. Stuff but that's because real. I didn't watch those movies as a child. <laughs> I have Amanda is not exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so what was your worst? Anything you didn't like in this movie? While I agree with you, JR, that there may not have been a better option, I still find it freaky and irresponsible to put all your evil items in the house with your child. Mm -hmm. At least rent a space somewhere. Don't put it there with your kid. I think that would make a, a great sequel. Yeah, like, the, the or a TV show, right? Yeah, or a TV show. Whew, man. Mm -hmm. Rounding Super up scary. the Warrens. That's what you could call it. <laughs> but that was, so that was like a part where you, you kind of checked out of the movie. You're like, this is stupid. That was just, it, they did such a good job of making everything pretty palpable, everything real, the whole base on the true story, the, the whole terror of the family, the way you just explain how it works from like children to parents and everyone believes and it gets to be more scary as a result. The reveals didn't lessen the horror. Uh, that was just the one thing to me where it was these people who take things so seriously. And I understand, I guess. I, I'm being nitpicky. I didn't really have a worst 
for the film. I mean, as far as horror films go, everything in that one worked for me. <laughs> but um, see, that's the thing, is that it, it is real. Like, it does exist. Like, they didn't just make that up as something, you well, know, to make the movie scarier. Like, it's legit. Like, I understand that they feel they're probably the best suited to protect those items, so why not keep them in their house where they're the safest? But their child's there. I don't, like I said, that that's the best I could come up with as far as the worst. I really enjoyed that film. Mm-hmm. I use that term loosely. Uh, honestly, for me, I was just really intrigued and curious behind what Lorraine's vision was, which obviously, well, that's a spoiler. Never mind. Um, like what her vision was in the first, um, you know, when they, when he, t- Patrick Wilson's character, you know, Ed tells the story about how she locked herself in a room for eight days and he couldn't get anything out of her. Like I was just really intrigued. I wondered if they would pay that off and they yeah. didn't. So, but that's just, you know, you know how we all like backstory in this in this podcast. I just Classic. wanted that backstory. Classic Amanda. <laughs> uh, Stacy. Um, honestly, I don't think I have a worse. That that movie truly horrified me, and I felt like all aspects of it worked well. It wasn't forced; it flowed together, and everything just worked extremely well. So. Yeah, I guess that my worst more arose after the film when I was kind of doing research on it. I, I think the way they they chose a very particular portrayal of Ed Warren, which is the most sympathetic. Um, and in real life, I think Ed Warren comes across as a little bit more of a huckster. Um, I mean, even just even just looking at some of their book titles and stuff, you're like, oh, okay, really, folks? Like, maybe you're drinking your own Kool-Aid a little bit here. Um, and so I, I, I guess I would have appreciated more ambiguity with the two of them. And, and the, the spot where it really, really bothered me, even seeing the movie for the first time, was where they did the exorcism. And they were like, we don't have time to wait for a priest. You just have to do it, Ed. And he's like, I can't. And she's like, I believe in you. And then he does it. Um, positioning him as someone who, like, said... I don't have the authority to do this, but then he does just because he does. Uh, It really bothered me. And then in the the second film, that's nowhere to be found, you know? Yeah. Um, So I don't know. That that just irritated me. I would have liked to have seen that position a little more interestingly. Um, And again, I, this is just more of a, of, of a, knit I pick with based on true story movies like that can mean anything right it could just mean like there's a guy named Ed Warren in the phone book so this is based on a true story Mm -hmm. Um, or you know people built houses in Rhode Island so this is based on a true story Um, and (laughs) and again there's obviously a little bit more truth to this one but having done some of the research like the actual story for both of these films is eh, it's pretty substantially different, and it's a lot less clear. Like, there's tons and tons and tons of people who think that all of this was not 100% real, uh, and, and the films leave you no doubt that this was 100% real. So I'm interested in that. Don't split up. You guys ready for The Conjuring 2? Mm-hmm. Mm. I would never right. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of a landmark episode in that Mo and Stacy, this was the first time you had to see a film in the theater by yourselves. Oh, uh, it was up terrifying. In, up until this point, you've been able to go together, but now that Mo lives in Denver, so can you walk us through 
how you prepared mentally and emotionally and spiritually for seeing this movie and then how it affected you live? I was a mess. I was freaking out for like two days. Like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go see this movie all alone. And not only am I going to have to see it alone, I'm going to have to see it at like midnight or 11 o'clock at night after I get off work. So that was, I was, I was just a mess. And then I, I forced my friend to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I basically had the same buildup and then I begged with zero shame as well as paid for the ticket of a friend to go with me. Nice. <laughs> we got to do what you got to do. Otherwise, my sole plan was to just literally sit down next to other people and pretend like that was normal and watch the whole film with some strangers. You didn't leave a buffer seat. <laughs> no, there would be zero buffer. I would actually probably try for the lap and just see how that went. So, JR is the only one on this podcast that got to see the film twice because he got to see a sneak peek thanks to our friends at the Alamo Draft House on Wednesday night. So, he went with Clay, and afterwards, he, I believe he texted all of us, right, and said, mm -hmm. I'm never sleeping again. Like, never, <laughs> ever, ever am I going to sleep. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, perfect. Well, this is what I have to look forward to the following night. And he even said, I'm thinking about not going with you because I don't want to have to see this film again because it is so scary. Not because it's bad, but because it's so scary. So, um, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Hearing that from JR, that just, like, ratcheted up the tension even more. Mm -hmm, I'm like, oh, my sure. God. If well, he's this, like, oh, how am I going to survive this movie? Like, mm -hmm. I, I should have known going in because I made sure to watch zero previews. Like, actually, the, since I've lived with my brother who has cable now, I've, like, covered my eyes and closed my ears for <laughs> any previews that have come on because I hate them for horror films. Like, they ruin it. Right. And so uh, I should have known, though, that going into this movie, why it terrified JR so much. And, mm -hmm. I mean, it got me, too, but this was, like, your personal hell, JR. Why do you say that? Because of the possession level. I think possession's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. And that little girl did a great job. Ooh. Yeah, uh, the acting of this movie is some of the greatest acting ever. That's, that's actually what me and my friend were talking about leaving this film, is the family really drew you in. You like all of the characters. You're sympathetic with all of them. Uh, it's one of the few movies where I didn't feel like any of the characters did something dumb. Like, I feel like they all pretty mm -hmm. much responded or acted as normal children would or scared children would or even a scared parent. Um, it, it was just, uh, it was well done. So uh, there is a, this is also based on a true story, the infield haunting in London. The family to this day uh, stands by the fact that it was a real haunting, even though... Janet and her older sister both admitted to faking um, uh, some parts of the haunting. So if you read the true story of this, you find that there are a lot of skeptics who say, oh, see, the girls even admit that they faked some of it. And then other people say, well, yeah, they faked some of it, but not all of it. And, and, and this is a really divisive case. It's very well documented. I, again, just like the first Conjuring film, this film doesn't treat it that way at all. This film is 100% this is real uh, there was a there was a real ghost, real haunting. Uh, so before we get, okay. without getting into spoilers, yep. uh, they do kind of play on that a little bit in the film. Yep, they do. They absolutely do, uh, which I thought was interesting. So overall, uh, yeah, I saw this movie twice. The first time I saw it with Clay, like Amanda said, and we even as the credits were rolling and we were waiting for the Q and A, we looked at each other and we were like, yeah, this. I mean, we were basically start to finish terrified. 
Um, from the opening yep. sequence, I was thinking this. I'm I'm very tense right now, and I thought uh, I thought everything was great. I saw it again last night with Amanda, and I was nervous, even more nervous going into it. <laughs> <laughs> and and there were so many scenes that the scene would start, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember how this plays out. Yeah, it doesn't help. Uh, I was still scared. Um, the jump scares still got me. Uh, the the just general pervasive terror that I felt throughout the the sequences still got me. In fact, probably the only sequence that didn't scare me as much was the the big climactic uh, showdown. Uh, I, I was much less nervous going into that because I knew how it all played out. Um, but that was that was literally about it. So it did feel a little bit longer sitting through it a second time. Uh, but I was also really paying attention to what I would have cut out, and there was very few things I would have cut. Uh, uh, and, and actually, I guess the, the biggest thing is that in the true story, Ed and Lorraine Warren were hardly involved in this at all. Like, they, they basically showed up, made the one tape, which they played at the end of the film, and that was more or less it. And so, for instance, I thought they could have cut out the mustache guy, Morris yeah. Cruz, <laughs> But he was actually the main guy that investigated everything. Yeah. So, I mean, he's really the, the person who pulled them in. Well, and, I mean, just, yeah, like, he was there for all of it. And, and, and so I think they had to sort of keep him in to have any kind of credibility as a true story. But in the film, they all very, like, he and then the, the skeptical woman, like, they all kind of felt like just extra dead weight that didn't need to be there. But that were a part of the true story. But they were part of the true story, so they had right. it in it, right? Yeah. So I think the I think the length of the film and and the somewhat bloatedness of it were were, le- were lent to the fact that it is a true story, and all the embellishments aside, they wanted to be sure to to include the people who were a part of it. So the skeptic woman is the one who I think I felt the most was forced into it because I felt like they could have portrayed that side just as easily without her being there. Exactly. But again, like she's a real person that was pretty heavily I mean, involved in the film. I understand what you're saying. I so, guess it was just her versus the mustache man. Like I, w- I thought she was less because that mustache guy. I saw the he was there like soul, you know, confident though. Right. Whole time he was their supporter. Like he really pushed and believed. Right. Mm-hmm. He took uh, the leap of faith. So it sounds like overall we were all big fans <laughs> of this movie. Uh, we all recommend it. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Well, how about that? Uh, Amanda, actually, on the way out of the theater last night, she said, um, depending on how this series continues on, this is, like, already one of the great horror franchises. I'd yeah, say absolutely. Completely. Yeah, with the, with the acting, with the scares, with, I mean, all of it. I was just thinking about all these other franchises we have, and I, I mean, I hope, I don't, I don't know, I assume that there will be more, um, more conjurings, I guess, but... At, at this point, I feel like it's up there with the greats, and so hopefully it won't fall off and make a three and a four and a five that are really terrible. Well, know? the Warrens did at one point exorcise a werewolf demon. So we have that <laughs> oh. Fantastic. I, um, Sold. No, I walked out of the theater saying the same exact thing, Amanda. So, I mean, A, it's not easy, or <laughs> easy, it's not easy to produce a sequel that's right. as good or close to the original in any genre. Uh, right. But I would go so far as to say horror is even a little bit more difficult 
And I truly think that the second one might have been, <clears throat> excuse me, might have been better than the first one. Actually, yeah. I, I was definitely more terrified of the second one than I was in the first one. I, I was as well. Yeah, I would say it's easily scarier. I mean, so, and it's just as well put together. So I, I, I kudos to them because it, it rarely happens in any genre and twice as difficult in horror, and they nailed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and get into spoilers so that we can talk about some of this in more specifics. So again, if you haven't seen The Conjuring 2 yet, we would very much recommend you just go see it. Uh, don't let us spoil anything for you. Uh, if you can, just even avoid a trailer unless you've already seen it, of course. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and discuss spoilers for this movie beginning right now. Don't split up. Uh, okay, so let's start with how they they did a Amityville horror film right at the beginning. That was the side right. haunting. They did Amityville. What'd you think? I liked Amity- it. I, I was just terrified. It set the mood immediately <laughs> because Amityville, I think, is one of the scariest like true horror stories, the original. And the fact that they started there and they had that creepy demon and then mm-hmm. she wanted a break and the vision, which like was the worst foreshadowing because you didn't know how it was going to play out. Um, it just set a whole tone for the entire movie that, I, I mean, that was basically the point in time that I was on the edge of my seat. Oh, yeah. That, that opening act definitely set the tone for the movie. You knew what to expect. You knew it was going to be scary. And I think that opening scene <clears throat> really made the movie. Yeah, when she was, uh, like, cocking the the fake gun in her hand. Well, not fake, obviously. It was real and did a lot of damage to people, but I was like, what? And then at first I thought that she was, that there was a man standing next to her, and then I realized it was a mirror, and I was like, oh, snap. This is insane. That like, was so well done. Well, and again, the way they filmed it, like when she when she's shooting people, it's it's like it's like a film cut, right? Like the mom is sitting up, and then without transition, she's just laying down and shot. Mm-hmm. Um, the boy's laying in bed. It's like a hard cut, and again, that I just found that it, it really underscored the otherworldliness of the vision that she was having, and it was that uncanny that we've been talking about in these clown episodes, right? It was so close mm-hmm. to reality, but it was different enough that it gave you this creeping sense of horror. And then, yeah, when she goes down into the basement and we see the nun demon for the first time, which Amanda said looked too much like Marilyn Manson for her. Yeah, it, I, I didn't buy it for the most part because I was like, oh, it's just Marilyn Manson. Well, just he's Marilyn creepy. Manson? He's, he's creepy, but I've seen him live and he's not that creepy. Uh, I was once watching one of his music videos in my basement with the lights off because I thought it was just normal MTV, and I was, like, truly scared afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be happy to hear that, I'm sure. Um <laughs> Yeah, so the the nun demon is the part of the film that is the embellishment or the invention. Uh, like you, you alluded to earlier, Amanda, we assume that her vision of Ed dying is something that's been plaguing her since before the first movie, that this, this particular demon has been following them or haunting them specifically in some way. It's in the Amityville house in the basement, and it's it's never made clear that this is the one that killed everyone in the Amityville house, or maybe it mm-hmm. is, but then it's also in the infield house. And, and again, this was the part of the movie I just didn't really make sense to me was, so is this one demon like just running around the world creating these situations to try to lure the Warrens in, or is it, it is it showing up because they're showing up, or is it just everywhere and just likes to kill families? You know, uh, we weren't really sure 
But it, but it, it sure seemed to have a very special connection to the war. What did, what did you guys make of it? I, I agree with you, JR. Throughout the movie, I was kind of thinking that. And then um, I also kind of reminded me of um, Insidious, where in that movie, obviously, the, the demon attaches to a person and follows the person. So I kind of, I guess if I'm going to, this is where I'm going to get nitpicky, because in these movies, it's obviously like the house that's being haunted, and then the family in the house is being haunted because they live in the, the house. But in and the it, second uh, not to interrupt you, Stace, but I, I was on the same page as you because in the first one it, it seems more house related, mm-hmm. um, even though it attaches to the person. But the second one, it very much is with the person because it crosses the street, and so they think they're safe sleeping at the friend's house across the street, and that's when the crooked man, you know, manifests. Yeah, but I feel like they kind of, and I get that, but I feel like they kind of switched the haunting style from like just the house, and then it started with them in at the Amityville, and then all of a sudden, like JR said, it like jumps to this other house far away, you know. That's yeah, kind no, of I where agree. Like, and, and, and again, are, are we... I kind of had like, an issue. Yeah, is the demon like just hoping that the Warrens will come there? Or uh, is is the demon not interested in the Warrens at all? But then again, like, uh, the, the, the most that I could make sense out of it was that maybe this demon just likes to go to houses and torment families, um, and when she was in Amityville, like her consciousness latched onto it, and then she actually kind of drags it psychically into their house because yeah. the payoff of the scene in her home, which was so scary, I thought, with the painting and everything, is that she gets its name, which the demon doesn't want her to have. Yeah. So, so in some sense, I wondered if, like, yeah, as scary as that was, and as much as she felt attacked by it, I wondered if, like, actually it was her psychic consciousness, like... Playing defense, almost. Or, like, offense. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. actually, actually, like, dragging the demon into her space, where she had some power over it, so that she could get its name. And then, again, when she ends up in another house where this demon is also tormenting a family... Um, and again, you know, again, people made a big deal out of how this was this was the English Amityville. So there was the hauntings were apparently similar enough um, that maybe maybe it is the same demon, and maybe that's you know I don't know that that's just the best sense I can make out of it. I, I think that I mean that's definitely going to be like my weak point in the film. Well, and it, to me, it seems like there was like the ghost stuff with the old man that had died in the chair. I mean, I know he was acting more as a puppet than anything, but I, I think especially because his presence was there, the crooked man presence or something like that, like obviously there was something to do with that that didn't have to do with the demon because Ed took the super creepy toy that they just need to get rid of that toy because it's mm-hmm. always trouble everywhere that you go. <laughs> like, when it tur- when you have to like turn something and it makes really horrible music and ugh, ugh. anyway. Avoid those at all costs. But that's sort of what I got from it was that sure maybe it's this maybe it's this demon thing that's sort of beyond all this stuff but I, like I said I'd be curious to see if they do a Conjuring 3 like is Valak going to be a part of it or is this a different um, are there are there lots of different manifestations of him is say, he a part of the demon society that you know <laughs> likes to terrorize I, people you know who I knows feel like he couldn't <clears throat> he couldn't be in the third one because that's why like she he's said banned, his name banished, she, you yeah. know like he's he's gone quote unquote you know like well that's not to say he couldn't come back mm-hmm. those, those demons are crafty 
You gotta double tap that nonsense. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so in the first film, it's Bathsheba, who is a very explicitly the ghost of a woman who has died. In mm. this film, you have Bill Wilkins, who is a ghost of someone who has died, who sort of just, he came to his old house to visit his family. They're not there, and then he can't leave because this demon has trapped him and is using him as a shield uh, to fool Lorraine Warren, ostensibly so that the demon can get the girl. Perhaps I was too terrified to break it down like you three did. <laughs> but I always had the subconscious thought that that demon was following the Warrens. It didn't seem like the demon was a part of the Amityville thing in the beginning. It seemed like the demon used that child to bring her down to it. Um, it seemed like the killings and everything else that had happened was separate. And then he, uh, again, kind of used this other spirit, uh, latched onto it, manipulated it into bringing Lorraine down into the basement so she he could or the demon could confront her um, and then she's terrified and she backs out and then again she kind of goes in and like you said JR whether it was kind of offensive or subconscious or whatever she goes into this psychic you know moment and pulls it into the house only after Ed's drawn it and Ed did not see it in the Amityville house so it kind of again lends to the fact that this demon is attached to them um, yeah. Yeah. just wakes up and makes this painting and she's terrified again, and then shortly after, she goes into that trance. Um, and then again, they go to this house, and it's almost like the demon knows, like, if he can create enough commotion that he's going to pull their interest. And so while it started off as just, like, kind of a normal haunting, or not even really, like, this guy was just confused, this old man who, like we just said, was going back to look for his family um, and finds this other family there, but then this a higher, more malevolent spirit takes a hold of him and uses him to kind of draw the Warrens back into the game. I, I always had the feeling that the demon was playing on the Warrens um, and that he wasn't a part of these individual things. He just used uh, the opportunities to get to them. But, it, but even the ghost, Bill said, the demon wants the girl. And the demon was trying to kill the girl and keep the Warrens out of the home in the end. Yeah, and again, true. if you go back to what Amanda's comment in the basement, right? Like, it seems like this demon collected children. Yeah, but it, he also wanted to kill Ed. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. Why not? With the wood Two spear. for one, right? No, I guess, I mean, we didn't really get... And the, they didn't... We got more of it in the first one because we knew it was the story of the witch and this woman, etc. I guess we never did get any demon background. Now that you bring that up, JR, maybe I like this film less. You know, <laughs> well, let's, let's, uh, obviously the plot's a little convoluted, and maybe we'll find out more in a third installment. But uh, let's talk about the scares, because I think we can all agree they were fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that one of the scariest moments in the movie for me was actually like the third night that the kids are all going to bed, and I realize in that moment I have to endure another night of something, at least before the Warrens showed up. And I was like, oh, or aren't, like, the police already know, the mom already knows, like, can't the Warrens just be here? Nope, they're going to go to bed. Okay, this is going to be <laughs> I think what was terrifying for me was how practical that little girl was, even though there was hints that something else was going on. She'd already woke up downstairs twice. Uh, her mom had seen her by now. You know, the TV and stuff, the, those things are happening where the remote's moving. Like, she's scared. Um but she's kind of being very stoic about it. And then her final decision is to tie herself to her bed with a jump rope. And she wakes up in the morning with what seemed like the worst fall out of bed ever, more like a throw out of bed. 
mm-hmm. and it was just like these kids tried so hard not to be terrified and they did I guess you know your childhood uh, type uh, remedies but oh man it was so horrifying mm-hmm. uh, Stacy's gonna have to go here in a minute before we're done so Stacy before you leave why don't you give us your best worst um God okay so my best would be when she is homesick or whatever from school, hanging out watching TV, and the remote, she keeps losing the remote, the TV's slipping back and forth, and she gets, like, real close to bang it because it goes out. Oh. And then all of a sudden, here, here's this guy. I verbally, like, let out a cuss word in the middle of the TV <laughs> heater. I was so, I jumped so bad. That, um, that one got me. I also really enjoyed when Ed was talking to him through the girl and she had the water in the mouth that that scene I really enjoyed I felt like it played out well alright Amanda stop Mo <laughs> I like I like this movie okay um, but my my worst would have to be like we had mentioned earlier the just the not really clear plan if the demon's like following them or if they just happen to run into him a couple times or the, the backstory on that is kind of my worst Regardless, still terrifying. Yeah. Oh, definitely. This movie was <laughs> horrifying. I jumped so many times, and I screamed so many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so before we before we do the rest of our best worst, I want to come back and talk about some of the some of the individual scares. Mo, earlier you want you were going to talk about the fire truck scene. Yes. So that yeah. was a that was a place where I felt like the long continuous take really paid off. Oh my God. So it's like you were saying earlier, just the fact that like when the girl would leave her room even, and it would slowly pan to the steps and then slowly pan down the steps. Like the tension buildup was so bad, but that fire truck scene, cause that kid was so sweet. Like they'd already kind of set it up from the beginning. He had the stutter. Everyone protects him. He's just kind of this nice kid. And he puts that fire truck away. It was like forcibly turned off. And then it makes one little chirp, and it just sets that, that edge. And the kid's like, did I hear that? No. And he gets into bed, and he gets out, and he's like, did I hear that? And he gets back into bed. And the whole time, you have that long sh- Yeah, and it's moving with him, shot. right? Like, and then that when fire he can't see the tent. Back into his room. Yeah, when, when uh, he can't oh, see God. the tent, you can't see the tent. Um, which, which, again, oh, go ahead, Stacey. I was going to say, real quick, I feel like what worked with that scene as well is the fact that you have the sisters in their bedroom and Janet or whatever's quote unquote talking through the ghost and he's saying I'm playing with I'm playing with Billy I think is his name like so you know like stuff is about to happen and this kid's about to be terrified so you're waiting for it and then it just slowly builds with the boy and just the combination of the two scenes working together I think yeah. made that truly terrifying I don't know why no one took that tent down I would have burned that tent. <laughs> right? Oh, that, man. I could, every time they panned down that hallway and I saw that tent, I got tense. Like, immediately, I was like, the crooked man's in there. He must be in there. I know he's in there. And I was terrified. But but how effective is that is that there were really only, like, two scares with the tent. And one of them is in the final night when everything is going down with Ed. Mm-hmm. Other than that, like, it yeah, just sits there. Mm-hmm. And it's scary because nothing happens because it is just a tent. And I think, I think that gets into part of what was so effective about this movie is it shows how routine the hauntings became Mm -hmm. and how they were like, well, yeah, like one time a scary thing happened with the tent, but 99.9% of the time, it's just the same old tent that's always been there. 
And so they're not any more scared of it than they are of anything else in the house. Right. It's really just the room that they locked up that they're like, oh, yeah, stuff flies around all the time. The crosses don't work. You know, we hear footsteps, blah, 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 NBD. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, why are you all still staying there? <laughs> right. And that's just it. Like, they kind of weren't until that one night when the crooked man supposedly manifests from the dog. Then you find out it's really Janet the whole time. And she comes in and stuff's flying. And, and then the neighbors have seen stuff like, you know, fly across the room and unexplainable things. And then the mom and Janet have to go back. I mean, everything, the way they kind of built up this plot was just continued to put you on edge. Mm-hmm. So the the two scenes where I felt like the long tracking shots were especially effective or one in that fire truck scene. And then again, when um, Janet has the flashlight. And she runs back into her room and she puts the chair against the door because in both of those scenes, the camera stays focused on the kid. And what that ends up, the effect that ends up creating is that we only see what the kid sees. Which makes it just as terrifying. So when Janet, Janet looks away from the camera and she's laying in bed and we can see her looking away. Like if they just zoomed out a little bit, we'd be able to see the chair moving across the room, but we don't see that. All we see is her face because she's not looking, so we're not looking. You hear it the way she hears it, and then she turns around and the chair's right there. And so that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it was it was such a clever piece of direction and camera work. Uh, same thing in, in the, you know, we already kind of talked about this with the fire truck, right? But, like, the kid leans out in the hallway, so now we can see out in the hallway. And then he leans back, and we can't. And right. so, again, even though we're not looking through his eyes, we are very much in his perspective and sharing his terror. Mm-hmm. Um one of the thanks, things that uh, – oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying thanks, kid. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that James Wan said, uh, there were two scenes he, he pointed out in the Q&A that were tracking shots where uh, they kind of had to do a little bit of cheating with the actress. The first one was where uh, her mom comes downstairs and finds Janet sitting in the chair, and she uh, has a fever, and so her mom takes her upstairs, and then the camera pans to the window, and it goes from night to day – and then zooms back and Janet's sitting on the couch watching TV. Uh, That was all one shot. And so Janet had to like drop down, slide under the camera, change wardrobe, and then sit on the couch while they zoomed out. Mm -hmm. Huh. Um, which was yeah fantastic the other one that that Juan specifically pointed out was when Janet and her older sister and Billy are in the living room and the middle son Johnny runs into the kitchen to confront the bully and then there's a loud crash he turns around and they're screaming Janet's gone Janet's gone And then when it zooms back out, Janet's crouched with one of the knives right beside him. And that was also the same thing when, when it was, when the camera was focused on Johnny, Janet ran around the set. They zoomed back into the hallway. So you couldn't see the kitchen. And in the meantime, she's grabbing the knife and getting into position. And so then when it zooms back out, she's right there. And again, we know the geography of the house. We know we don't, you know, we, in our minds, it's not a set that has back doors. So she has teleported. And we saw the whole thing because the camera never cut. Like, we know she didn't run past her brother and grab a knife. Mm-hmm. And so that just enhances the terror so effectively. Mm-hmm. Is it safe to say that James Wan is slowly becoming the new master of horror? I don't know how slow it is, man. I mean, he did Saw. Uh, he's been Both doing this for... Yeah. 
both the conjurings. I mean, his his repertoire as far as directing is mostly horror. I've never mm-hmm. seen Dead Silence. That's also one of his films. Oh, you need to. It's fantastic. Do I? Do I need to? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh no, but I mean he he's like I mean, pure gold. He doesn't have a bad film, at least in horror. None that he's directed. Yeah. I mean, he produced Annabelle. Uh, he produced the rest of the Saw movies after number one. Uh, so I, I think he enjoys putting his name on things that he doesn't lend his expertise to. So No, I'm talking purely from a directorial standpoint. Yeah. And he, he did amazing work with Furious 7. He's the director that had to figure out how to finish that movie after Paul Walker died yeah. early in the filming. And he did a great job. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, you guys ready to do best worst? I'm trying to think of a worst. There, I had several bests. Um, I really, <laughs> interesting. I really, <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> name them all. I think my favorite addition was the Crooked Man. I liked how the demon really played on the fears of the children in this one, mm-hmm. um, and that Crooked Man had been brought into the film so many times that you needed some type of payoff. And when Billy wakes up in the middle of the night, because they're seemingly safe across the street, staying with the neighbors. And you hear that dog ring the bell. And I love that nothing was really lost in this film. From the first time they went over and the dogs, you know, ringing the bell. And she's like, oh, yeah, we teach him or we taught him how to, or to do that when he wants to go outside. So Billy thinks he's getting up to let the dog out or, you know, help. And then the dog slowly turns into the crooked man. And the crooked man starts singing that nursery rhyme. Mm-hmm. That, oh my God, I had like, cause it was like, now you guys have nowhere safe to be. And then when it transitioned into the girl walking into the room and everyone came down, uh, that was pure horror for me. Like that was the, <laughs> it just made them, I don't know, that, that I'd say that was best. Cause I was literally, I don't think I could push myself further back into my seat at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Are you going to share your worst or do you want us all to do our best? Well, let's all do best first. Okay. I have a feeling we're going to be somewhat similar in our nitpickiness for our worst. Okay. Uh, I, I would totally agree with you. The crooked man. Oh, he was so terrifying before we started recording the show. I actually shamefully shared that I tried to hide myself in the cover so that I couldn't look at the door to see the crooked man <laughs> coming my way. So so that's definitely uh, going to be an image that is in my head for a very, very long time that will terrify me, like the Babadook and all these other scary, scary things. Um, but yeah, overall, I just thought it was, ugh, there are so many, so many great things. I love Vera Farmiga. I think she does a great job. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Anyway. Yeah, for me, the best, the best, I think the best scare um, was probably, yeah, my, probably the best scare for me, I, even though, even though it was in the trailer, I thought the whole sequence where she's in bed with her mom and then it gets teleported onto the ceiling and then mm-hmm. dragged up into the room with the crosses. Oh, yeah. Because then it all leads into the mom pushing the door open and seeing her there and then the hand over her mouth and that, like, and then seeing his face. And then they get in there and she's being strangled by the curtain. And all, like, all of that was just uh, really riveting. And, mm-hmm. you know, the crosses flipping upside down, him coming out of the shadow again much like with the first film, I wish that hadn't been spoiled in the trailers, but I understand, you know, you got to sell the movie somehow. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I thought that was all just really, really great. Uh, so yeah. What about worst? So we were kind of talking about this uh, as we were leaving the movie. JR pointed out that the water, all of the water in the basement that was completely horrifying and you could have done a ton of stuff with 
nothing. You're seriously you taking off. my worst? No, no, but I was just saying. That's <laughs> I'm not funny because it. you guys have obviously talked about this already, and that was going to go straight to that, but for a different reason. So this should play out well. I'm curious. But but I think that, that, that part of that, that totally makes sense, especially because I have a deep fear of water, especially because there could be house sharks. You just never know. There's, there could be a shark. <laughs> basement thing. sharks are a thing. Basement sharks. I mean, we've all seen Sharknado, and you are not far off. <laughs> but the other thing, I mean, I thought that all of the cheesy love stuff was a little over the top, you know, that Ed and Lorraine, that the only way that they're going to get through all of this is because they are obsessed with each other and love each other. I don't know. Um but the only other thing besides that, uh, I have a hard time, and I know that it's not James Wan's fault. I think Patrick Wilson is a great actor. I think he does a really good job. But I, in my head, am having a little bit of a difficult time keeping his character from Insidious and this character as Ed Warren uh, completely straight. Because, again, same actor, obviously different characters, but... Very um, similar in their demeanor and everything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, that, that would be my worst. My worst was not the basement scene. I thought the basement scene was very effective and scary. Uh, my worst was that they didn't pay that off. Uh, so you were saying, Mo, like with the bell and the dog, that was a great example where they established something and then later on it comes back as a scare. Yeah. Uh, we had two major characters go back into that basement at a climactic moment in the film and nothing happened. It's and I thought... I thought I was really bothered by that. I thought, well, that that's uh, I don't know. It's like it, it, in, in some ways it felt like a it, it felt unbelievable to me that in a very mild moment, there was something pretty terrifying happening in the basement that in the big climactic moment where everything is going crazy, basement safe. I, um, I agree because I I had somehow linked the whole vision she had with him getting stabbed in the back to that basement at that point in time. Oh, to that specific basement. Interesting. And I don't know why, but because it, every time she showed it, it looked like he was in a dark place and it looked like something snuck up behind him and all of a sudden he like wrenched backwards as it like kind of impaled him. And, and they kept showing that basement, like you said, and they kept, it was a scary place. I mean, it was all filled with water. They have that scene where he goes down there and uh, is fixing things, which really bothered me because it was like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Let's just go walk around the haunted house into the creepiest places. And they find that retainer or the, you know, the teeth, the uh, dentures. Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it never came back around, aside from that one scene where she sees it and it bites her. But uh, I, don't, I felt like they paid too much attention to it for nothing else. Yeah, for nothing else to happen, right? Yeah, that that was that was it for me. So that was like the one glaring spot. And then again, we've already at beat the, the plot holes to death. So, um uh, overall, I was just, I loved this movie. I thought it was so scary. I would not be surprised if it ends up in my top 10 uh, pretty easily. Mm -hmm. uh, I am, I'm curious from both of you, and I wish Stacy was still here to, to weigh in as well, but uh, the, the two screenwriters for this, the Hayes brothers, uh, are unapologetic about the fact that they're evangelical Christians. Uh, you know, the first Conjuring movie ended with this, like, quote from ed warren on white text on black screen that said you know god's real and the devil's real and you better know which side you're on kind of thing um in this film it was a little bit more subdued uh in the sense that it was mainly just ed warren talking about his own personal faith and belief in god but i'm curious what how that felt to both of you watching these two films uh, go ahead amanda 
I was just going to say very similar to what I had said previously was that it was a little heavy handed and an over the top, a little cheesy because um, it was just basically a bunch of one liners like, oh, you just have to have faith. You just have to take a leap of faith, especially in the first one, you know, oh, well, we're not really church going people. Well, you better be, you know, after this time, um, which I'd, again, it didn't it didn't detract from the film overall. Obviously I, I loved it, but it, it was just a little bit over the top that in the second movie, I didn't think that it was as bad. And I just think that it's interesting that his crucifix has these magical powers that can get rid of all of the demons, but all of the crosses and crucifixes in the room that didn't. That bothered me as well. I wondered what was so powerful well, about Well, and furthermore, most, I, I think most of them were just crosses. I don't know that hardly any of them were actual crucifixes. So um, maybe, maybe that's what they would say. Oh, well, because Jesus isn't on the cross, it doesn't have them... Jesus power or something. Or I, I think know. it goes back to the first film where it's Ed, it's specifically Ed that mm -hmm. is powerful. Yeah. Um, which again, that's what that first film kind of established for no good reason, mm -hmm. right? To make him the hero. I did think it was interesting that the two times that they get helpful information from Bill, which is kind of like when the quote unquote real Bill is able to speak is when Ed is holding the cross up to him mm -hmm. and he speaks the two half sentences. Yeah. I guess my other worst would be that whole sequence, like how they figure it out. It just felt really um, forced, ham fisted. Yeah, force. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That was actually the one part where I kind of giggled a little bit in this movie, um, was because he says a line right before he puts that bag up. Like I don't know, it just seemed a little too convenient. And he puts the bag up, and both the recording things come out, and he has this epiphany. And I'm like convenient like that like is, is that is that what you mean by a little too convenient like it was just so... that part that part didn't even bother me as much because i like i read enough detective stories to know that sometimes you have a hunch and you take a leap of faith and there's like a, a trigger that makes a bunch of things click together it was more like wait put these put these out set up the tape recorders um play this hurry get the dad he can't be gone yet like it was like uh... <laughs> yeah no i um i didn't feel like the Christian undertones or overtones were too bad until the end. Um, and then it just goes back to kind of what we were talking about with the first one where he takes over and handles the exorcism that the whole movie, he talks about how this malevolent, malevolent spirit is beyond him. Um, or actually not the whole movie. I'm sorry. It's when they finally figure out what it is and they're racing back to the house. He's like, Oh no, this is way past me. We was just, just like the first one. He's like, we need to get the church involved or we need to get her to the church and save her. Um, and then they get back there and they handle it again. He's walking around mostly blind, uh, with his, you know, cross out in front of him saying whatever he wants to say. Um, and then she walks in and granted she knows the name, but just utters like a couple of sentences with the name and the demon's gone. Like it just, it didn't feel right to me. Like they, they had put so much emphasis on getting the truth for the church, getting the church involved. Uh, he states that he's not, you know, a match for it. And then conveniently enough, they are. That, that kind of bothered me a little. Well, so the, the reason that part specifically didn't bother me is because in like most demon folklore, it is knowing the name gives you basically like complete power All over the power. Demon. Like that's why demons guard their names so closely. And that's actually why you need the church involved because if you, if you can't 
it's it's like the name is like a key. It's like so if you don't have the key, you got to kick the door down. And the church is the like Andre the Giant guy who can punch down the door because they've got so much Jesus magic. Sure. Right. And so it's like it was like yeah, if they hadn't had the demon's name, they and that was why I said to me the only thing that made sense was that the reason the demon was in their home was because she had dragged it there to get its name. Like sure. it, she was on offense. Like she knew sort of subconsciously that they would need, they would need its name at some point. Are you going to um, talk about your Easter eggs? Yeah. Well, so actually I got to Again, I got to give clay credit. Um, when we left the theater, he said, yeah, when, when she was carving in her Bible, the name Volok was on the bookshelf. Really? And I was like, what? Yeah. So I, I go back and I watch. Right. So, you know, those big wooden letters that you can put on your bookshelf, like they're yeah. usually supposed to be monograms or something. Sure enough on the bookshelf behind the daughter, uh, it Valak in big wooden letters is spelled out on the different shelves. That just gave um, me goosebumps. Get this though, dude. In the scene before that, when they're having tea and he's just, you know, he's just coming in and said, well, I know I'm not a Picasso, but I don't think it's that bad. On the windowsill behind them, there are like little flower windowsill decorations that have letters in them. And it says Valak on those. Ugh. And when the daughter's sitting at that table, she's making little friendship bracelets and there are block letters and all of the bracelets say Volok on them. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the name was all over their home. So I, I think that kind of lends more to the fact than that that spirit or that demon had to be kind of pursuing that family. Or again, that she's playing offense in some way. Yeah. And she's trying to get, she's trying to get a hold of it. So I kind of want to rewatch it to see those, but I know <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I can tell you, it's not any less scary the second time. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, yeah. I, I, overall, I I was. I, I guess here's here's my caveat. As someone who's a Christian, like I'm a pastor, right? So um, I don't necessarily like disagree in large part with the worldview that these films establish, but I think it's interesting that there's they decided to write a very particular kind of horror movie and that's like demons are real and they can possess you. And that's scary. There's another option they could have done, which was to, to hew more closely to the true story, which is, wow, there's a lot of people that think it's all bull crap. And either way, like this police officer saw a chair slide across the floor. Now, no one's sure whether that was, well, I, everyone's sure one way or the other, right? There's people that are like, it's definitely a hoax. Other people are like, it's definitely demon possession. And there's a lot of people that are in the middle of that. And so you could have told a horror story where these kids are kind of psychopaths and they go to elaborate lengths to fake everything. You could have told a horror story, which we got, which was like, no, they're real demons and this is scary. And then there was a horror story that's like, uh, we don't know. We're, we're going to kind of present it as objectively as possible. And in the end, you're going to have to decide. And you're going to see that, yeah, there's actually documented evidence of this kid faking stuff. But then there's also documented evidence of stuff happening that no one could explain. So what do you do with that? And I don't know, they chose a particular way to tell that story. I was very scared by it, but I understand there's a lot of people out there who aren't going to be because they don't buy into the Christian worldview. And so um, kind of in the same way that people who don't believe in aliens aren't scared by alien movies or people who don't believe in werewolves aren't scared by werewolf movies. People who don't believe in in demons and demonic possession just aren't gonna be scared by this. I think everyone will be scared by this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've already seen a few people on Twitter that were like, eh, worse than the first one. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. 
Um, they should probably be locked up. They're probably secretly sociopaths. One, no, one of the co-hosts of the Faculty of Horror podcast, which I've mentioned on here a couple times. Um, the one who doesn't believe. Yeah, and and I mean, she said she was like, "Yeah, it was okay. It was way too long." Wow. Ouch. So, so I mean, yeah, I just it'll be interesting as this film, you know, uh, gets word of mouth going. Uh, hopefully, partly from this podcast listeners. Thank you for sharing. Sharing is caring. <laughs> um, it'll be interesting to see just what the conversation looks like. So, well, we're out of time uh, for this week. Uh, we'll be back next time. We're going to go back to our Alien April, which is now extended well into the summer. Uh, we're going to be looking at two films, The Fourth Kind and Event Horizon. Uh, those are both oldies and hopefully goodies. So if you haven't had a chance to watch those, uh, check them out so we can talk about aliens and the things that scare us next time. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, you can find more of our episodes at don'tsplitup.com. Let us know what you thought of The Conjuring 2 at facebook.com slash don'tsplitup. Uh, until next time, stay away from fire trucks, don't build tents in your house, and whatever you do, don't split up. Join J.R. Stacy, Amanda, and Mo to discuss blood, guts, horror, and gore. In our podcast, Don't Split Up, where we discuss horror movies and how great or not they are. Because as you know, in every horror movie, First rule of survival is never leave your friend. So don't split up if you want to make it to the end. No, don't. Don't split up. Well, this place is huge. No one take the back porch. Scream if you see anything. That won't be hard. But in observation of this loaded moment, I am not in favor of splitting up, nor am I three days from retiring. I will not be right back.